We're continuing in Mark chapter 2 this morning, uh, actually moving backward just a few verses from this sermon from Pastor Steve last week. It's on page 708 if you're using the Pew Bibles, uh, Mark uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. In this section, as we've been studying it, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, begins to face opposition in his person and in his message. And there are five short narratives here with an increasing level of conflict uh, between Jesus and the religious establishment, the religious leaders of his day. In this section, it becomes clear that Jesus is not going to play by the rules of the Pharisees and the scribes and, the, and those who were... Uh, the religious elite of the day. He is going to be, and seems to be, intentionally provoking them. He seems to be doing this in love, of course, not just to make them mad, but to help them come to a place of repentance. And it will happen, of course, for some, but seemingly just a few of these uh, who would would come and, and actually humble themselves and believe his message. But Jesus is taking on Uh, these religious leaders, and taking on their traditions. And he's trying to show them that they've missed God's intent, that they've misunderstood the law, that they've missed the point of what God was trying to teach them in the Old Testament. And so they've missed it, and they're leading people astray. And they're they're not uh, keeping the people close to the Lord. So, and all of these issues that are coming up, all of the issues of the conflict of this section, center around the person and the actions of Jesus. Mark is introducing Jesus to us, and what's coming into sharp focus is that Jesus has a new kind of authority and a new kind of power. Jesus is unique in his person and in his relationship to God, the Father. There's something different and special and unique about him. Jesus has a different understanding of the Old Testament law and how to interpret it and what it really means and what it should look like in a person's life. Our story this morning is the third, kind of the middle one of these five, and in a way it's a crux of the issue between Jesus and his relationship to the uh, the religion of the leaders of his day. So we'll look here at this uh, section, Mark 2, starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? yours are not. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. That's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do ask that you would teach us through your word, that you would speak to your people what, what we need to hear about who you are and, and what you have done and how we can follow you more closely. Guide and direct us during this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start just a bit more with the historical background here again, because I think it's important to understand more about these opponents of Jesus, particularly because they figure so prominently 
in the Gospels. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you can understand kind of a little bit, maybe, of who the Pharisees are and, and what they're concerned about. But if we think about the big picture, we might ask this question. Maybe you've never thought about this. It's, why would God, if God is giving us his revelation, why would he include so much about the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day in his word? Why was so much of Jesus' ministry set in relation to them, in contact with them, in contrast to them? Jesus didn't explicitly take up a lot of the issues that we might have wanted him to address, but he spent a lot of time arguing with the Pharisees. He spent a lot of time critiquing the Pharisees. He spends a lot of time um, in relation to them. And have you ever thought about that? It's kind of an interesting question. What is it about them? I mean, of course, there's the historical context of it, and, you know, and, that's, and that's part of it. But what is it about them, and what is it about him, that makes so much of the gospel account kind of center on these issues as Mark is introducing us to him? If you read historical documents of the church fathers in any era, era you can find examples of great writers giving a lot of time and attention to combat a heresy or to combat an opponent who never got much traction in history. I mean, and, and so and as we're reading it much later, we would go, why is Augustine or Luther or whoever, why are they so worked up about this issue? No one in history seems to have ever cared about that guy or about that particular um, issue. Uh, an example of this is in John Calvin's great Institutes of the Christian Religion from the mid-16th century. He spends many, many pages in a lot of different sections of the book arguing against the teachings of a man named Michael Servetus, and of course there's a lot to this story, but Servetus' theological views never got that much traction. They were never that popular. Uh, he, He wasn't that significant in terms of a theologian. He wasn't a giant. He was just a guy, and, uh, and, but Calvin spends a lot of time arguing against his views. And one commentator, if I remember the illustration correctly, one commentator on Calvin was describing this as the image of a fly caught in a jar of honey. The insignificant fly, this guy with these views that no one really ever cared about, that weren't that, that, weren't that compelling, was caught within this honey, this beautiful uh, influential, great piece of theological writing, one of the greatest in the history of the Christian church, right? We don't care about the fly, but it's interesting that so much of the honey is, is related to it. So much of what, Sir, or of what Servetus cared about that no one else really cares about later was preserved uh, by Calvin. Are the Pharisees something like this? Are they kind of this obscure or insignificant group that's captured within this majestic gospel story? Maybe, but actually, I don't think so. I think that we need to understand the actors in their historical context, which is really, really important. But further, we need to see that the Pharisees aren't just opposed to Jesus as, the hist- you know, as historical figures of his day, but there's something of a prototype of the religious opponent of the kingdom of God. There's a timeless element about them. Human nature in religion has a tendency towards graceless Pharisaism. So Jesus isn't just critiquing them. 
He's opposing an approach to God and to others, blatantly manifested by them, of course, but which is a common shared human temptation, a common shared human idol. He's showing that their kind of religious strictness and legalism are not compatible with his person and his message. And so as we think about the Pharisees, it's easier for us to say, man, those guys sure missed the boat, didn't they? But we also must say, how are we like them? How have we also had that same temptation towards the kind of graceless approach that they had because of our sin nature is shared with them? So a little bit more about them because I think it's important for us to see and to look at them a bit in a mirror, as it were. The Pharisees were a Jewish sect. They were a group of lay people. They arose a couple centuries before Jesus' earthly ministry. Their concern was that faithful, devout, Old Testament-believing Jews were being swallowed up by the Hellenistic Greco-Roman culture of the day. So they were conservatives, right? They were calling to people, keep people back to seriousness about their faith and concern for God's word. And as they did this, over the decades, they became more precise, they became more strict, they became more voluminous in their laws and in their traditions. They were likely a small portion of the population, a commentator estimated it at 1%, who knows, but, but for their smallness, they were very influential. They seemed to have been admired or at least respected by the common people because of their piety, because of their religious knowledge, because of their zeal. They differed in many of their beliefs and practices from other religious communities of the day. The the Essenes were from the Dead Sea Scrolls, or or another religious community that was much more, that was separate uh, from the mainstream Judaism. They were different from other political groups like the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and others of the day. But among all of those groups, it seems like they were the only one to survive after the Romans conquered Palestine and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And further, much of what is preserved to this day about Judaism is partly because of uh, the work of the Pharisees to pass down the law and the history and the traditions. In other words, without the work of the Pharisees, much of Judaism as we know it today would have been lost to history. But recent scholarship and a couple of recent studies are showing that the Pharisees at this time as Jesus is interacting with them in, in the early first, uh, you know, first century there, um, that they were consumed with the details of the traditions and their religious practice. In other words, historical studies that are being done today are confirming that the gospel writers are giving us a very accurate picture of what, they, of what these Pharisees believed and what they, what they practice. So the, the gospel writers don't have straw men in mind. The gospel writers aren't making up bad guys. This is a realistic, authentic picture of what the Pharisees were concerned about and what their, and what their influence was like in first century Judaism. So to sort of sum up the picture, it's kind of a, a you know, they're a mixed bag, right? In their approach and their value of God's word, they, they, were, um, they valued it. They, were, they thought it was very important. They, they were the ones who were studying it. They were the ones who were memorizing it. They were the ones who were live, trying to live by it. So in those ways, Jesus would have a lot in common with them. They wanted to please God. They wanted to take his word seriously. 
But these conflict stories are showing us very clearly that they had lost the intent of the law. They lost the heart of it. They lost the, 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 the truth of what it meant to be in a relationship with their God. We, and we, as we observe them, we see these things, that they had lost a soft heart for others. They had lost an ability to take criticism. They had lost a desire to include other people in that club. Instead, they said, no, 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 you're not worthy. You can't come in and join us. So they've collapsed in on themselves, propping up one another in their self-righteousness and law-keeping. They made the standards in such a way that they could keep them, but no one else could. They were very certain that they were right, and they could learn nothing from Jesus or anyone else. Right? They had become a picture of religion at its worst. The veneer of righteousness covering over hypocrisy and greed and jealousy. And the problem, of course, wasn't with the law of God that they diligently studied. The problem was with their actual practice, what they actually did. And how the law didn't change their hearts. And as we think about them, I think we should think about us as well as we go through this sermon. And how, about, how can we fall into these same traps? And how can we ask God to help us avoid them? Our text this morning is set up by a question in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Fasting, of course, is a practice of denying oneself food and or water for a time. It was a common practice in many religious traditions still to this day. It was required in the Old Testament for God's people on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, according to the regulations in the book of Leviticus. In uh, the idea of the Day of Atonement and the fast for it was that it was a 24-hour fast, and that was the only one, though, that was required by the law in the Old Testament. But as we read the Old Testament, of course, we see many other examples of fasting in the Old Testament of people who were, who were practicing this during a crisis or with specific prayer requests or as a part of their mourning or lamentation. These weren't practiced according to any specific law. They were just part of the religious response of God's people. At some point along the way in their history, the Pharisees began to practice fasting more than once a year. According to the parable of the Pharisee of the, uh, the, of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, and according and this is corroborated in other traditional materials, uh, it had become standard, not required, but it sure looked good, for you to fast twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays, from dawn until dusk. And further, the appearance of fasting was very important to them as Jesus criticizes them in Matthew 6, for seeking the reward of the praise of men rather than seeking the spiritual benefit of knowing God, that their fasting had become something that was done for show, that you had to keep up the appearance of at least twice a week. See how much we've gone above and beyond the law of God, how serious we are about it? Twice a week we are fasting, and you can tell by our faces because we're so disheveled, because we've gone without food for I don't know, 10 hours or something, right? Jesus is showing us the ridiculousness of this practice that they were doing it all for show. Well, how does Jesus answer the question? Verse 19. He doesn't really answer the question exactly, does he? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? 
They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus, as he so often does, doesn't answer the question. He asks the question in response. It's something of a riddle here, but the answer is obvious. It's impossible, right? So if we think about a typical village wedding, it would last for about a week. The guests and the friends who are invited didn't really have a lot to do with the wedding except to enjoy it and to celebrate and to have fun. Weddings were accompanied by lots of food and drink. It was a great time of celebration and dancing and singing, and, you know, it was a big party. So the last place that anyone would be fasting would be at a wedding. The rabbis even took a break from their teaching the Torah in order to participate in, these, uh, in a wedding like this. So in sum, this, so Jesus' answer, right, is a question that's the most ridiculous thought. Like, how on earth would someone be fasting when the bridegroom is with them and the wedding is at hand? That's ridiculous. Who, no one would do that. And it's clear, though, of course, that Jesus is not against the discipline of fasting— Certainly, Jesus wasn't against the Old Testament laws about fasting on the Day of Atonement. He indicates that fasting is a good thing. There's a time and a place for it. But this isn't it. This is not the time for fasting, he says. It's as inappropriate for my disciples to be fasting in my presence as it would be for your guests to be fasting during your wedding celebration. How does that strike you? What kind of claim is it that Jesus is making here? To get more insight into it, we need to look at the Old Testament images of marriage. And the prophets especially, but scattered throughout, we get this recurring theme that God is the bridegroom and that Israel is his bride. God has chosen his bride because he loves her, not because of anything that she has done. God declares his love for his bride And so, of course, as the prophets remind the people again and again, there's heartbreak when the bride walks away from the groom. Prophet Hosea, of course, the men are studying this semester, is all about this theme, covenant faithfulness and love being shattered by idolatry and unfaithfulness. So the bridegroom and bride image is well known in the Old Testament. And further, when the prophets speak of the Messianic age, they speak of it sometimes with the image of a wedding. When the Messiah comes, it will be like a wedding. It will be like a great feast and the richest of foods from Isaiah 25 and all other, uh, there are more passages listed in the sermon outline that you could look at. And yet, in all of these images, it's not that the Messiah is the groom. It's that in this Messianic age, when the Messiah comes, God is the groom. And so, you can see that in picking up this image, Jesus is saying, he's changing the image. He's taking God's place. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom of God's people, of this nation. And this is the time for the wedding. So, Jesus is claiming, implicitly at least, if not explicitly, and they they wouldn't have missed this, I'm taking God's place. In the same way that a few uh, weeks ago I told this guy that I forgive his sins, and you said, no, only God can forgive sins, right? In the same way here, Jesus is taking God's place in this image. 
And of course, we know that the completion of the wedding when Jesus, is when Jesus returns at the end in the second coming. But in his person, in his presence, Jesus is saying to those around him, my mission is a marriage. I've come in love towards my people. It's time to celebrate and not to fast. And so all of the things that weddings symbolize for us, right? Abiding love and a shared future and hopes and dreams and vows and commitments and beauty and celebration. These are the kinds of things that Jesus is bringing to his people. And we need to reflect on this a little bit, don't we? It's, 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 it's important. It's heavy. Our culture's image of the groom reluctantly getting fitted for the ball and chain, right? The end of his life as he knows it. You know, that has no place in this picture. This is about the joyful choice of love and commitment and shared life forever. This is Jesus moving towards his people in celebration because he wants to. And yet even here in this, this you know, celebration image, there's a note of sorrow. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Verse 20, certainly there's a place for fasting when the opposition succeeds in taking Jesus away from his disciples. Jesus is alluding to the climax of the coming conflict between himself and the political and religious establishment of the day. He will be arrested and killed. He will be taken by force from his followers. And this would have sounded a a striking note, a, a dark Note, because this isn't like a wedding, right? The groom isn't taken away. In a wedding, the guests go home, and the groom stays with his bride to start their new life together. So even in the midst of this, this is a celebration, and my disciples should not be fasting, Jesus is saying there will be a time when they will be fasting. To make the point further about what is going on here, Jesus gives us two short parables in verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. These parables are simple. The parallelism is obvious. They have the same pattern of thought and language. In the process of washing clothes, many times they shrink. In the process of making wine, a wineskin has the flexibility to expand as the wine ferments. But this expansion can only happen once. So these two things are old, not in terms of age as much as in terms of usefulness. This garment that needs repatching and patching and repatching is worn out. This wineskin has served its purpose and it can't be used to make another batch. On the other side, the unshrunk patch is new. The wine is new, not just in terms of age, but also in terms of quality. It's better. In the same way that Jesus is teaching with a new authority in his person, he is the new which cannot be contained by the old. So the point of these two parables in their original context is Jesus saying the Judaism of the Old Testament is being surpassed. It's being replaced. It's being abrogated. It's being fulfilled. In other words, all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And so when Jesus arrives, you can't miss him. 
You can't go back to the old. You can't choose to keep going with everything as though he hadn't arrived. The forms and the structures and the practices, not just of the Pharisees, but all of the Old Testament ritual, are not able to contain this Messiah. And he's not saying that those Old Testament regulations were flawed in any way, because God's law is perfect. Jesus is saying that because of his arrival, their time is ended. And the strongest image of the parable is that if you try to put Jesus into this system, if you try to put new wine into old wineskins, if you try to put a new patch on the old garment, what happens? It's ruined. It's destroyed. Jesus won't fit into the system of the Pharisees. He won't be contained by their rules and their traditions. He won't fit into the Old Testament as though he were just another prophet calling the people back to the law. There's no compromise between Jesus and the old way. He's the fulfillment of the law, and his arrival changes everything. And so as we reflect on this passage, I think we need to just, you know, think about it. What does it mean for us today? First, the topic is about fasting, and I think it's important for us to consider this as a spiritual discipline. It's not a popular one these days. Perhaps our food is too close and it's too easy just to open up the fridge anytime you feel any hunger. But Jesus isn't with us right now. We are in the age while he is physically taken away, and there is a place for fasting as a part of Christian discipleship. And throughout church history, fasting was an important way for God's people to connect with him in times of crisis and in times of need and in ordinary times when people were pursuing him and they wanted to grow in their faith. And so I would encourage you to consider more about this, learning more about fasting, not to be seen by men, not because we have to bargain with God somehow, not just trying to do a good work, but fasting is a way to acknowledge our dependence on him and to seek him as our spiritual food more than seeking physical food. It's good for us to feel hunger in our bodies if it reminds us of the spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness that is to be the mark of the follower of Christ. It's good for us to take our needs seriously by feeling it. Every few years here at the church, we've done the 24-hour famine with the youth group. They all made it. They didn't waste away. Um, Hopefully they learned something of an appreciation of self-denial for a greater spiritual benefit. Not self-denial for itself, that's Phariseeism. Not self-denial for show, but self-denial for spiritual benefit. And so I'd encourage you to to think about that. I challenge you to to consider, perhaps there's a way to, to work some fasting into your life occasionally as part of your pursuit of Christ, to feel physical hunger, And to recognize that that points you to a spiritual hunger. It's a reality for God's people. Second, and this one didn't make it into the sermon outline, but one of the points of application I was thinking about was, what does it mean that the Pharisees are the central character of opposition? And yet at times, believers in the church can share many of the same characteristics with them too. If you were to ask your neighbors about the evangelical church in America, whatever that means to them, whatever they've seen on the news or whatever, would they say things about us that sound a lot like these characteristics of the Pharisees? 
Of course, I'm not saying that that's fair, but often stereotypes exist for a reason. It's so difficult for us to live in this culture and be faithful to our convictions while loving the lost, isn't it? It's always been a challenge of the church. Of all people, Reformed Christians should be the most humble when it comes to our religion. We know that we haven't earned our salvation or our righteousness. We know that it isn't up to us to save ourselves. And so our humility about being found by Christ should drive us towards others based on this grace that we've received. The hard part is so often like the Pharisees, we feel like we sort of have to be the moral police of our society as though our job is to make people sort of stop sinning and straighten up. The Pharisees got a, they got a charge out of making other people feel these kinds of things. You aren't as good as us. Right? You're wrong or stupid about this issue or that issue. We know how you should live your life. Right? Again, in, the, in their minds, these kinds of things were all based on God's word. They started from a right motive to be pure and to help others be pure. But we can see how they began to mess up the order of things. And they began to put the law before the person. And they began to lose a sense of compassion. They began to take the judgment from God and began to apply it themselves. Place it in their own hands. And I think we need to to consider these tendencies within our hearts and within the church. And I don't mean this church specifically, other than I mean it for every believer. To consider what does it mean that, that we can be like them, that we can be tempted to be like them, that we can be those who won't listen, who don't think that we can learn from those around us, those who are dogmatic about secondary issues, how we speak about the sin of others out there is less important than we how, how do we speak to them about Jesus. Finally, we see that Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, isn't he, when he comes to human religion and all previous worship of God. Jesus is saying that even true religion that was given by God and pointing to him, or even the Old Testament, God's revelation to his people about how to be in a relationship with him, even that is old. It's pointing to him. And so you can't keep going with it if he's here. Right? It can't contain the things that Jesus is bringing in his person and his, and his work. And so these parables, they jump out to us, don't they? I, I really hadn't given a lot of thought to the meaning of these parables until this sermon. You know, you, you hear them, and, but, but they're really powerful, right? Jesus won't fit into your religious mold. It won't work. He won't... He's too, he can't be contained by that, by your system. You can't add him to anything else and still have true faith in him. The American dream plus Jesus, that doesn't work because he's not going to be impressed by your American dream. He's not impressed by the stuff that leads your heart away from him. And so he might whittle away at your American dream. He might make it dissatisfying to your heart. 
if that is what is really orienting your life. Whatever it is. The American dream is just this idea, right? This, this myth that, that there is a happiness out there and that it's to be found and lived for in this life. Whatever it is that is that happiness for you, whatever it is that, that your heart longs for, that draws you in, and then you want to add Jesus on, right? Jesus is not impressed by that. He won't fit into that mold. He's, he's, he's too powerful. He's too, he's too vital. He's too real. He's not going to fit into any religious system. He wants to have a relationship with his people that can't be contained by these ideas about, um, about all this other stuff that we have and that we want. And so that, that really draws us to the heart questions, right? What motivates and drives our lives in the deepest way? Is it this idea of this myth of happiness to be found in this life with whatever it is, the new thing, the car, the house, the success, the, the achievement, the family, the whatever it is. What drives us and motivates us? Jesus wants, that, Jesus wants to take that spot in our lives. So ask him this week to take out the distractions in your heart. Help him to, help him to show you what are your idols. Help him to make, ask him to make you see that you need this new cloth, you need this new wine, plus nothing. That's what you need, this new wine, this new cloth, plus nothing. He's the groom who has come for his people because of his love. The kingdom of God has arrived. The wedding party has begun. And of course, we're in this time when it's already and not yet when we experience the first fruits of it, and yet we're waiting for it to really begin. We're waiting for him to really come back. But Jesus has come into the world, and he's not contained by all that the world would put him, all the boxes that the world would put him into. And it changes everything for us, doesn't it? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your coming that, that does change everything, that does make life different in the course of history of the world and in the course of the history of our lives. Jesus, we thank you that, that you bring a power, that you bring a vitality, that you bring uh, something real and true in your person, in your message, in your relationship to your people. That, change, that changes our lives and that makes us want to love you more and makes us want to follow you. We pray that you would be the one at work in, in, your, in your church, in our hearts, that you would be rooting out our idolatries, that you would be showing us ways in which we have followed after the things of, of this world rather than the things of you. And Lord, we're thankful that you are committed to us that you are coming as a groom who loves your people and who has made promises uh, to save us, to preserve us, to keep us um, for eternity. And we thank you that we can, we can know these things in a, 
in a fresh way this morning. Thank you for giving us your word and for teaching us these things. We pray it in your name. Amen.